You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Drama, drama, drama. In case you haven't been paying attention to what's going on in U.S. politics news, no, we won't get into it because that's a different show. But here in the U.S., we do seem to like the drama lately. In the latest twist in whether or not the U.S. Space Force will or won't relocate from Colorado Springs to Alabama, four new Space Force missions have been announced in, want to guess? Colorado Springs. And that could be a new tally mark in the stay column for Space Force HQ. Today is June 1st, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazas, and this is T-Minus. New Space Force missions in Colorado Springs. Florida's home for Starcom HQ. NASA's new satellite tsunami detector. UAPs, but no ETs. And my interview with Lucas Nystrom, Chief Technology Officer at SatCube, all about supply chain management and automation for satellite manufacturing. Stay with us. Let's take a look at the Intel briefing for this 1st of June, shall we? Now, adding to the ongoing saga of the Space Force will-they-won't-they headquarters move to Alabama, the Air Force announced the creation of four more Space Force missions in Colorado Springs. The selection of Colorado Springs sidesteps the political debate initiated during President Trump's final days in office when he selected Alabama as the preferred location for the headquarters. Now, that decision is still under review. The Air Force has been slowly but surely consolidating space operations in Colorado Springs, with at least 20 space missions now based there, and the introduction of a space curriculum at the Air Force Academy. Other new permanent locations for Space Force missions include New Mexico and, most recently, Florida. The Guardians plan to establish the headquarters for its Space Training and Readiness Command, or STARCOM, at Patrick Space Force Base in Florida. 
This development will introduce hundreds of personnel to the Florida Space Coast to create training programs for Space Force members, including Space Delta 10 for wargaming and tactics. Starcom is responsible for education, training, and development of space professionals. Hey, wait a second. That actually sounds a lot like what we do at N2K Space. So, Starcom, give us a call. Now, we'll keep close tabs on the evolving Space Force headquarters decision, and we'll keep you informed of the latest, of course. But with these recent announcements, it's admittedly not looking good for Alabama. We do love an acronym on T-minus, and today we're going to bring you, in all uppercase, Guardian. And no, we're not talking about the Space Force kind. And get ready, this is one of those dreaded acronym sandwiches. Okay, here we go. The GNSS, Upper Atmospheric Real-Time Disaster Information and Alert Network, also known as Guardian, is NASA's new experimental monitoring system to detect tsunamis. The system uses data from clusters of GPS and other wayfinding satellites to look for signals of developing disastrous waves. The waves cause air ripples in the Earth's atmosphere that can distort the signals from nearby navigational satellites ever so slightly. So NASA hopes that these signals will allow the agency more time for early tsunami detection. And how about that NASA panel yesterday about unidentified aerial phenomena? Did you hear about that? Well, if you missed it, our interns were there with matching Please Abduct Me t-shirts and alien antenna hoping against hope that we'd learn something exciting. Alas, nothing revelatory. The NASA team was unequivocal in their denials. Quote, there is absolutely no convincing evidence of extraterrestrial life associated with UAPs. That being said... NASA's experts tasked with studying UAPs also emphasized that they lack substantial data to understand the events reported over the years. The panel, which is separate from the Pentagon's own research effort, is working towards developing a roadmap for NASA's future unclassified, science-based study of UAPs. Now, the group noted that the current data collection efforts are unsystematic and fragmented across various agencies, so they advocated for more targeted data collection— The Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office is increasing its efforts as well, announcing the development of purpose-built sensors in collaborations with NASA, the Five Eyes Alliance, and universities to improve data collection and analysis. So while some UAP sightings have been demystified, the panel stressed the need to reduce stigma about reporting strange phenomena to enhance data quality. NASA's final report is due in late July. Our friends at Space News are reporting that Boston-based startup Fortify has raised $12.5 million from investors. Fortify is developing a digital composite manufacturing platform for applications including satellites. Their customers and now investors include Lockheed Martin Ventures and Raytheon Technologies' RTX Ventures, who both believe that the company offers a strategic advantage to the defense industrial base. And now over to our international desk for some updates. Made in Canada will soon be on the labels of satellites and space domain awareness tech after MDA and Thoth Technology announced a partnership. MDA plans to integrate their commercial data services with Thoth's ground-based radar technology to provide sovereign monitoring in deep space over Canada. MDA is currently the only non-U.S. space-based contributor to the U.S. Space Surveillance Network. Combined with MDA's expertise... Thoth's Ontario-based radar facility hopes to advance, develop, and deliver capabilities in deep space radar surveillance and space domain awareness. 
ID Quantique announced that they're joining TESAT to equip the Eagle One satellite with advanced security features, facilitating the EU's quantum communications infrastructures from space. Eagle One is a satellite-based QKD or quantum key distribution system, and it's set to enhance secure transmission of encryption keys across geographically dispersed regions. ID Quantique will develop a space-qualified cryptographic key generation system, while TESAT will manufacture the QKD payload. These advancements aim to ensure the security of cryptographic applications for industries such as government, telecommunications, cloud providers, and banking. Co-funded by the European Space Agency and the European Commission, Eagle One is slated for launch in 2024. And for a bit of background in case you're not super familiar with quantum key distribution or quantum communications in general, and though it may sound like science fiction, quantum cryptography is a very real technology. The threat posed by quantum-based techniques to break some of today's most popular encryption algorithms is just as real. Many nation states are already investing in a collect now and decrypt later strategy where they just scoop up as much encrypted information as possible today expecting to decrypt it using quantum computation in the near future. Quantum key distribution is a core technology to ensure the security of encrypted communications against such attacks. While South Korea has achieved significant progress in its space program, such as the recent successful launch of the homegrown Nuri rocket and the lunar orbiter Danuri, political disagreements are hampering efforts to create the Korea Aerospace Administration, or CASA, South Korea's proposed equivalents of NASA. Despite President Yoon Suk-yeol's commitment to establish CASA by year's end, the Ministry of Science and ICT's proposed legislation has not yet gained National Assembly approval, largely due to conflicts with the opposition Democratic Party of Korea over its positioning and leadership. New Zealand has unveiled its national space policy, marking its growth as a leading spacefaring nation. The policy outlines a growing and innovative space sector, focused on protecting national security and economic interests first and foremost, with provisions that enable international business cooperation. The policy emphasizes the importance of irresponsible and sustainable use of space, and also proposes regulations for safety and security. The policy will serve as a reference point for future space policy creation in New Zealand, guiding the nation's decisions around public policy, business growth, and national security. We've included a link to the aforementioned policy in our show notes, by the way, space.n2k.com. And finally, in the show notes, you'll also find an excellent bit of journalism from the New York Times. The Times tracked several oil tankers faking their locations while transporting Russian oil in an apparent effort to deceive their American insurer. Much of the data used in the research was derived from space-enabled data, including from Planet Labs, Copernicus Sentinel-2, Maxar Technologies, Marine Traffic, Spire Global, and Equasis. It's a great practical demonstration of the value and usefulness of space technology. And that is it for our briefing for today. Hey, T-Minus crew, if your business is looking to grow your voice in the industry, expand the reach of your thought leadership, or recruit talent, T-Minus can help. We'd like to hear from you. So send us an email at space at n2k.com or send us a note through our website so we can connect about building a program that can meet your goals. Coming up, I speak with Lucas Nystrom, Chief Technology Officer at SatCube, all about supply chain management and automation for satellite manufacturing. 
Stay with us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. We've all heard about the supply chain woes over the last few years, and I'm sure many of us experienced them firsthand. Now, SatCube, which is a manufacturer of communication satellites, managed to mitigate much of the supply chain disruptions. So here's Lucas Nystrom, chief technology officer at SatCube, who sat down with me to explain how they did it. From the start, when SatCube was founded, we we've always, or we made the decision early on that we would do all manufacturing in-house. And the reason for this, when we started, was that we saw that there would otherwise be supply chain and quality issues. Uh, so we set up our own factory in Kolsta, which is a city in Sweden. The factory was very small. Um, we were able to produce a few, like 100 units uh, per year. We then quickly outgrew that facility and we moved to a new one, uh, which is the current one that we are occupying. And we have a, a capability of doing around 500 units per year, which is now starting to be a bottleneck in our in our uh, business plan. So we need to upgrade this facility. So we are building everything from scratch. Uh, so it, it's basically just an open floor uh, where we let our architects uh, design how the workstations should look, what's the best uh, workflow, how do we optimize the incoming goods, uh, production, assembly, testing, outgoing goods. So just general the the production chain to streamline the process, to make it more lean. Are there any uh, interesting technologies? Uh, you mentioned some of the, the, the lean processes being integrated. Any technologies of interest that might be enabling this uh, build-out? So many of the... Uh, the advantages of moving to this larger facility where we're able to to build the entire chain from scratch is that we can, from the start, start to build a process which we can not fully automate. So it's not conveyor belts, but it's, it's semi-automated. And we're building it in a modular fashion where we can gradually upgrade the level of automation. So the initial installed capacity will be around 5,000 units per year. But we we have already prepared for some small changes uh, where we can move from from five thousand to fifteen thousand, and then there are some larger investments, uh, capex investments that we need to do to to scale up to fifty or even a hundred thousand uh, in the same facility. So just a matter of making the the production more efficient by using, for example, automated screwing stations instead of manually doing all the the torque drives. That makes sense. And one thing I, I noticed, uh, and we, we talked about this a little bit before the interview, was uh, we were talking about keeping the supply chain more local and the advantages in that. Could you expand a little bit on that? When we started, we we knew that, okay, many of the parts will always be sourced from uh, all around the globe because the industry is, is by definition global. Uh, so some suppliers are 
in in around in in Europe, some are in Asia, some are in the US, and then literally all over. So we we saw that there there is a potential risk that it's going to be difficult to source, and if there is if if there is only one component that we can't get a hold of, then the entire production is is just stopped. So we had a strategy from the start to to try to source as much as possible locally, and that meant that we would only source the very specialized components from others. So like the very core small building blocks, and then we do all of the assembly ourselves. So that means that we have much less risk in the supply chain, which we were very happy about when the pandemic hit, uh, because of course there were issues with semiconductors, but at least many of the larger components we could still source easily because it was meant to be easy from the start. Uh, so we were impacted, but not that heavily. As you look ahead to developments in satellite technology, what's of interest to you? What What are you looking at for um, uh, as potentially new or interesting technologies? One of the key drivers, uh, at least to us, is is trying to optimize the uh, power added efficiency or the energy consumption of the system. So this is a, a common metric in the telecom sphere: is to look at watt per megabit per second. Uh, in SATCOM, on the on the space side, this has been a big thing because you're very short on on power. On the ground, there are a lot of terminals that consume a lot of power because it hasn't really been a bottleneck. We're seeing that they, if, if you consume an excessive amount of power, this this it it has like a a snowball effect that you you consume more power than you need, so you drain batteries faster. But you also increase the strain on the electronics because thermal issues they they grow exponentially. So then you need bigger heat sinks, which means that you need uh, you need fans, and then you need to do IP protection of those fans. So everything just sort of explodes. So one of the key areas of of interest and research for us is is trying to look for energy efficient solutions, and this implies that we're looking at. Uh, low loss antenna technologies, uh, trying to use as much airfield structures and metallic structure as opposed to uh, the the more conventional substrate based uh, or PCB based antennas, uh, which tends to to dissipate more heat than they they need to. Uh, and the other factors are uh, on the semiconductor side. So there are some advancements on on semiconductors and amplifiers. That are interesting to look at, where where you can try to optimize the, the raw efficiency on the amplifiers themselves. So, for example, looking at Doherty amplifiers as a way to 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 maybe be more not just have a very high efficiency at the saturated power, which has been a big big selling point from the amplifier vendors, but to actually try to optimize for the operational conditions of the amplifier, which most of the time is quite far backed off from the saturated power. And uh, given given the use case for SatCube, I imagine uh, all these developments make a lot of sense given the context in which uh, your products are used. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, mention about uh, either SatCube or the, the new production facility? I think it, it's maybe worth revisiting the, the supply chain aspect again. So we we talked about it from a purely logistical perspective that it's it simplifies sourcing if you can do it locally. Uh, another aspect is the the increasing geopolitical situation where uh, both Europe and the U.S. are, are trying to actively uh, 
onshore more of the semiconductor te technologies and, and more generally the manufacturing of, of components. Uh, so it's it's important to, to to think about these geopolitical aspects when when doing your supply chain analysis to make sure that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, which uh, eventually might be a, a non grata region. And then you, you have to do all your sourcing again and you might have a stop somewhere. Our thanks to Lucas Nystrom from SatCube for speaking with us today. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. And welcome back. You know, many of us have our comfort TV shows that we like to watch or rewatch, even if you've seen it a zillion times, when it just feels like you want to have the media equivalent of comfy sweatpants on. CableTV.com says the top three comfort shows for Americans are Friends, The Office, the U.S. version presumably, and Star Trek. Though I have to wonder which Star Trek, or do they mean the entire franchise collectively? For me, I've certainly watched and rewatched Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine many, many times. But one of my fave comfort shows is the outstanding sci-fi cartoon Futurama. And if you're like me and really, really love Futurama, after many years on and off, and back on again, and then back off the air, you probably think the show ended rather nicely a few years ago. After all, it put a rather lovely bow on Fry and Leela's story, and it felt like the show had finally gotten the ending it really deserved. And you'd be technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. But... Good news, everyone. Superfans probably know this, but just in case you missed it, Futurama is actually coming back again. The show announced its return earlier this year to some joy and confusion, and today we're learning that Futurama's coming back on July 24th this summer, and the new episodes will be streaming on Hulu. So fellow Futurama fans, we're walking on sunshine. Mark your calendars for July 24th, and until then, just like Fry's dog, it might feel like a thousand summers, but new Futurama episodes, we will wait for you. That's it for T-minus for June 1st, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. See you tomorrow. T-minus.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs> 